All right, let's go to our Heavenly Father once more in prayer this morning. Dear Almighty God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together and to worship you. We thank you, O Lord, for the opportunity we have already had to sing your word, Lord, to affirm your word through the reading of a creed, Lord, to even pray regarding the word. And Lord, now we come to the preaching of the word. Father, Lord, we pray that your word would sink deep within us this morning, that it would pierce our hearts and cause us to delight more in you. Father, will you do this work in us through the word and the power of your spirit today? Father, Lord, we want to echo a similar prayer, not just for our own church, but for our sister church in Bethel Baptist Church and their pastor, Kevin Cox. Father, we pray, Lord, that you will be with him. Lord, if uh, he's either in the pulpit or, or will be stepping shortly, depending on when their church starts. Father, we pray, Lord, that you will uh, be with that, uh, our sister congregation there. And Father, Lord, that you will continue to build up your church there that the people may gather continually and worship you. Father, we also want to pray for uh, another sister church in, in Next Level Church, Lord, in New Orleans, Louisiana. Lord, a, a recent church plant there uh, through uh, the North American Mission Board. Father, we pray for their pastor, Bobby Williams, and his wife, Keisha, as they uh, do this hard work of church planning. Father, Lord, we pray for them, Lord, to have uh, knowledge to of the city of New Orleans and, and be able to uh, faithfully go out and to reach the lost and point them to the hope of the gospel that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, Lord, do that work even now and this day there. Father, we also want to pray, Lord, uh, Lord, we, we thank you and praise you, Lord, for the ceasefire that seemingly came uh, in the last day uh, between uh, Israel and and Gaza. Father, Lord, we want to pray, Lord, for uh, sister churches there, Lord, filled with Messianic Jews as well as Arab Christians. Lord, our brothers and sisters have been called in this crossfire for, for so long, and we just pray, Lord, that you would help them to stand firm upon the faith and to be a light in the midst of ongoing conflict, that the light of the gospel would shine brightly there, saving both those of the nation of Israel and uh, Arab Muslims there, so that they may come to know you and find peace. Father, we pray that you would do this work. Father, Lord, your word has also called us uh, to pray for those uh, who you have put in authority over us. So, Lord, from time to time, we want to lift up those in authority. And, and this morning, we want to lift up uh, to you our current president in uh, Joe Biden. Father, Lord, we pray, recognizing, Lord, that he would recognize that you have put him where you have him and that he would do this humbly or that you would give him wisdom that you would help him to see it's not about his agenda. He is put there for your purposes and that it would humble him. Father, help him to lead well. We ask this in praying on his behalf and for the benefit of our own nation. 
And Father, now, again, as, as we come back to our focus on you, we ask now that you will give us eyes to see, hearts to receive, and ears to hear as we turn to your word in Mark this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For Narnia. If you've never read the children's book by C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you are sadly missing out. I would highly recommend it, no matter how old or how young you are. I've already read it to Betsy Grace and will probably read it a hundred more times to her. I love C.S. Lewis and his writings. C.S. Lewis captures probably one of the most beautiful pictures in his characters, especially that of Aslan. The story of Narnia is that of four siblings entering a foreign and strange land of Narnia, where it's always winter and never Christmas. They enter it through that of a wardrobe. A wardrobe being that of a, a self-standing closet, uh, if you are unfamiliar with what those are. Uh, they enter through the back of it into this strange land. The four siblings end up in there all together, and yet one sibling betrays the rest and ends up being claimed as a traitor by that of the white witch. She holds Edmund's foot to the fire, calling for his blood to be shed. And yet, as the white witch comes for Edmund, declares that blood must be had for his moves and, and steps as a traitor, Aslan intervenes. Aslan goes and is slaughtered on behalf of Edmund. Edmund is able to live because of the sacrifice of Aslan. That is where we come this morning in a similar story, but a much greater. Just as Aslan is to be feared, so is Christ our King. And that's where we come this morning in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to go ahead and open up to Mark 8, 27. Uh, if you are or newer to the Bible, or, or have forgotten that the, the big number there is the chapter number, and the little numbers are the verses, and those are, are just there for reference spots this morning. So Mark 8, beginning in verse 27. This morning we come to uh, the end of the first half of our study in the Gospel of Mark. Starting uh, next week, uh, we will do a one-off uh, for Memorial Day weekend in, in 2 John, and then the summer. We'll come back to, to Mark and pick back up there in the fall. But so far in Mark, we've seen Jesus revealing himself to the world. He's revealed himself first to the Jews, and then now in the last few weeks, he's began even revealing himself to the Gentiles. So far in this, there's been much misunderstanding of who Jesus is. People have thought he, he is all sorts of things. But this morning we come to the climax of Mark's gospel. Who is Jesus? And that's what I want us to look at, beginning in Mark 8, 27 this morning. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, 
and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You know that I like to give a, a main point summary of the text and the sermon. And therefore, the main point this morning is this. Jesus came as the servant king who willingly suffered on our behalf. Therefore, Christian, we should eagerly take up our cross to follow him. Let me repeat that. Jesus came as the servant king who willingly suffered on our behalf. Therefore, Christian, we should eagerly take up our own cross to follow him. We're going to look at this in three points. Point number one, the Christ. Point number two, the suffering servant. Point number three, the cost of discipleship. Point number one, the Christ. Jesus starts there in 827 asking, who do others say that I am? And, and the disciples give the answer uh, as they're traveling. They, they tell him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and, and others, one of the prophets. People around simply think Jesus is uh, a continuation of the long line of prophets. They think he is a new Moses or, or a new Elijah, or Elijah possibly incarnate, uh, or, or brought back. Because Elijah was taken up, and this is why they thought. People have assumed Jesus is just another of the prophets. They don't get who he rightly is. And yet that's not foreign from us in our world today. There are people who, who say, oh yes, I, I love Jesus, or, or I admire Jesus, and yet know nothing of who he is. This is seen as those who would say, Jesus is a wonderful and great teacher, but he's just one of many ways. This would be of those who think Jesus is simply an instrument of social justice, missing though that he is called the King of glory, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. 
This is all around us. Jesus's identity is at stake in the world around us. And we wonder why there's much confusion in the world around us. Even to our own shame, often as we share who Jesus is, we blur who he is. We blur that Jesus is just something we need to tack onto our life so that we can get a hell out of or get out of hell free card. Kind of like collect $200 as you pass go playing Monopoly. We, we've shallowed who Jesus is and that the world is confused at who he is. Who is Jesus? That's why it, or Jesus turns to Peter and the disciples there quickly after. They give who the world thinks he is. But then he turns to them. Who do you say I am? It follows in verse 28, or 29, sorry. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Jesus doesn't care essentially what the world thinks of him. He wants to know what do those who claim to be his followers think of him? He doesn't want the world's judgment and them to take that and just say, oh, we, we echo the world. He wants them to make their own judgment of who he is. And Christian, that's what we're being called to do as well this morning, to affirm that judgment, to hold to it. James Edwards in his commentary writes, faith is a judgment about Jesus and a willingness to act on the judgment in the face of other possible judgments. What judgment is that? That Jesus isn't just a prophet. That he's not just a, a new Moses or a new Elijah. That Jesus is the Christ. The Messiah. The anointed one. The one who was promised to come and to sit on the throne of David forever and ever. That's who Peter is confessing Jesus is in saying are the Christ. And Peter's not just doing this for Peter alone. He's the spokesman on behalf of the 12. The 12 are finally seemingly to get it. Jesus isn't just a prophet who's with them. He's the Christ, the long-awaited for snake crusher from Genesis 3.15. Jesus has come to fulfill this. He's come to take up the throne of David forever and ever. They get that much. They understand it. We must too make this confession. Understanding that Jesus is not just some mere prophet who's come to further God's word. He's come to be the one over it all. He is. This is why you'll hear me constantly use language such as King Jesus. This is essential to our understanding of who Jesus is. Because one of the other missteps of who Jesus is, is thinking that along those lines of Jesus is a get out of hell free card. It's the idea that Jesus can be our Savior, but not our Lord. If we miss the Lordship of Jesus Christ in failing to come and submit to Him, we've missed who He is. Jesus isn't merely one is furthering God's word. He's declaring it with authority as a king. So he's not just a priest. He's a prophet, priest, and king acting on our behalf. 
This is why Psalm 2.12 says, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is the call as we make the declaration. Jesus is the Christ. It's a call of utter surrender, utter declaration of allegiance to Jesus. It's turning from that of sin to an allegiance now in Christ. That he calls the shots, not us. This means when we say Jesus is the Christ. Merely a, a last name or a surname. It's not like my last name, Ryan, that is tacked on. Jesus is the Christ, is his title. He's the King of Kings. Why does this matter? Because it is upon this confession of Jesus as the Christ we see in Matthew's gospel is the foundation for the church. Brothers and sisters, it is upon this confession of Jesus as the Christ that Peter echoes in Matthew's gospel there in Matthew uh, 16 that we see Jesus say, upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. It's not on the rock of Peter. It's on the rock of the confession of Jesus as the Christ. This is the rock in which the church has continued to be built upon. This is why we guard who's in and who's out regarding church membership. It's an understanding. It is those who have made this confession are those that are in, not those that deny it. This is essential. But not only that for for entryway, and the disciples there in Matthew's gospel are told to, to guard with the keys of the kingdom to handle them, but it says against this church upon this rock of confession, the gates of hell shall not prevail. This church, this confession is essential for what we stand upon. This confession is essential to our faith. Jesus is the long-awaited Christ, the long-awaited Messiah who has come to sit on the throne of David. God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus. And therefore, all the promises of God promised in the Old Testament will come in Jesus. This is what it means when we say Jesus is the Christ. It's essential. And yet, we see uh, that Jesus here falling in verse 30 says, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Wait, this is essential, but Jesus, you don't want us to go and and tell others. Why is this? It's not because Jesus doesn't send it. That's not a call for some of us to sit on the sideline and, and not go and share our faith. It's to understand the importance. The disciples aren't yet, as we're about to see in point two, they don't get just who Jesus is just yet. Their eyes are partially open. They see trees walking, or people walking as trees as we looked at last week in Mark. But they don't see clearly just yet. So Jesus doesn't want the disciples to go and tell of his Messiahship, of his Christship, yet 
because there's going to be misconceptions. The disciples are going to have it off. So they're going to confuse people about who Jesus is instead of helping them. So Jesus tells them to wait. Now's not a time of going to tell others just yet. You need to sit at my feet a little longer and continue to learn. Brothers and sisters, we too would do well to sit at the feet of Jesus and continuing to learn who he is so that we rightly can go and declare him to others. The suffering servant. There in verse 31, and he began to teach them that the son A man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed after three days rise again. We think of kings. We don't think of those going in and serving others. We think of kings being served by others. We think of kings going in with swords and and battalions and conquering their enemy through war and defeat. We see them storming and invading foreign territories to take them as their own. This is the idea of typically of kingship. And yet, Jesus is about to say, hold on, this is why I didn't want you disciples to go out just yet and start blabbing who I am because the world's not going to get it. Because they think Jesus has come to be like other kings and take over the land of Israel. They think Jesus has come to give just political boundary freedom from the oppression of Rome. They think of here that Jesus is saying, wait, the Son of Man must suffer. Now this title, Son of Man, uh, we've already talked about a little bit through Mark, but in case you missed it or or forgotten, this is picked up and used in Daniel 7. Jesus is being referred to as the Son of Man even there, that one is going to come and to conquer, to inherit the earth. So Jesus is the one being portrayed as the one to come and conquer. But when he says the Son of Man must suffer, he's showing that to do so, it's not going to be easy. He is going to suffer. In fact, he's going to die and rise again in order to inherit what is promised to that of the Son of Man. He's going to suffer, but why? Why is that? This is not lost on the pages of the Bible. All throughout the Old Testament, it is promised that one is coming as a Messiah King, as one to conquer. It's going to be through suffering. Even in Genesis 3.15, we looked at during the Advent season last year that Jesus was going to be stricken on the hill even as he crushed the head of the serpent. Even more importantly there in Isaiah 52, verses 13 through Isaiah 53.12. Now we're not going to read this whole section, but I, I would encourage you, write this reference down and look it up later today. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53.12, it clearly here lays out Jesus as the one who would come as the suffering servant. But I just want to read verses 5 through 7 here. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. The Lord has laid on Him the inequity of us all. He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So He opened not His mouth. Jesus came to suffer in this way because of our iniquity, because of our sin. Just like Aslan's blood ended up having to be shed in order to spare Edmund for being a traitor, so it is for us. Blood must be had because of our rebellion, because of our transgressions. Because we are traitors to the God who created us in His image, in His likeness. Blood is called for to cover and atone for that. And yet, instead of it being our own, Jesus comes to stand in the gap. Not just so that He continually has to die again and again, but once for all. His bloodshed covers our sin and our transgressions forever, forever. This is what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to die so that we may live. He suffered, condemned in our place so that we can have eternal life. The suffering servant came not to be served, but to serve through willingly laying down his life. Our king is that of a servant who cares more for his people than his own self, his own life. He suffered and bled in our place. But just how essential is this to the Christian faith? Look there in verse 32. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Why, again, did Jesus tell the disciples to wait? Oh, Peter, 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 Peter. You're rebuking the King of glory, the one you just said is the Christ, because he said he must suffer. It said that Peter said, this, this certainly cannot be true, even the night of Jesus' death, Peter made bold claims. Peter likes to make bold, arrogant claims. But mind you, brother and sister and friend, we often are so folly and brash to make bold claims of our own. So we must not judge Peter too quickly. And yet, we must understand here how essential suffering is for the Messiah. Because notice Jesus' rebuke there in verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here Jesus is showing the essentialness of the cross. Because Peter is rebuking him that he should not suffer. In reality, this is the same thing that Satan did back in Matthew 4 in the temptation in the wilderness. 
Satan came to Jesus and saying, look, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. All you've got to do is bow to me. You can have it all, all that's promised you, you can have. You can have the throne of David if you'll just bow and worship me. Oh, by the way, you'll miss the cross. You'll miss the suffering. The cross is a of our sin. It's dead before a holy God. Our sin has created us for eternity from God. It requires this blood. So Jesus comes and willingly suffers. He stretches out His arms to be pierced for our transgressions, that all who would believe in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus doesn't come just to conquer that of foreign kingdoms. He comes to conquer that of sin and death on our behalf. No matter how grave the sin is, no matter how hopeless we often feel, Jesus comes to defeat that. Brothers and sisters, friends, there's no greater victory than victory in Jesus. Because that victory guarantees us life eternal to be brought back into the presence of our holy God, our Father, forever and ever. No end, no separation. We are united to Him, and all that is His is ours. The cross is not merely uh, a thing to, to be had, but it is essential to our faith. So we must understand that Jesus is both that of king and sufferer. He is the suffering servant king who has come to rescue his people, to buy us back by that of his own life. But not only does he defeat sin as he's crucified, he defeats as he rises on the third day after his death, after his burial. He rises from the tomb, guaranteeing us to join in that resurrection life, knowing that when he returns, this same resurrection will be brought to all who trust in him. Brothers and sisters, this is sweet news. This should cause our hearts to fill with worship because of who our king is and what he's come to do. For us. He's come to die so that we may live. And we have assurance in that. There's an old hymn called, uh, written by Charles Wesley in 1742. And I, I say old hymn and just want to apologize ahead of time. When some of you talk about old hymns and it was written in the 1930s or 40s, if I chuckle, I'm sorry, because I think not in old in the sense of all of church history, not just our lifetimes. So I apologize ahead of time. But th this is an old hymn uh, by Charles Wesley called Arise, My Soul, Arise. It's, here, here's the first verse. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands.
Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. This surety is what the cross and resurrection of King Jesus promises us. We can stand and rest on it with great assurance. Our assurance isn't based on what we do or don't do today. Our assurance isn't based on if we screw up, if we struggle and fall into sin again. Our assurance rests in the promise of Jesus, in his finished work on the cross, and as he rose again. But, here, there, there is a but here in the sense of something else. Not only has Jesus done this, but there is a, a cost involved in following him. A cost we need to count. And this is where we turn in our third and final point this morning. The cost of discipleship. Here, Jesus says in verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here in this verse, three imperatives, that is three commands are given what it means to follow after Jesus, to come after him. We see this in uh, a call to uh, deny himself, a call to take up his cross, and a call to follow me. There is a cost involved as we are called to come after Christ and to follow him. And yet it is one that I would urge all of us to count worthy of taking. Let's look at, at these three. A call to deny self. A, a call to, to deny self is ultimately that of uh, saying no to that of our own self-centered, personal, uh, self-interest, desires, and focus. A call to deny self is a call to reject ourselves as the determining factor for our goals, aspirations, and desires in life. We are called to deny ourselves. We are called to not be the ones calling the shots, but to come under that of King Jesus, where he calls the shots. We're called to, to deny that of our own heart longings and begin to be shaped under our new king, to be transformed and our minds renewed instead of us going about how we think things should be, Jesus shaping how things should be, and us falling based on that. We deny ourselves when we stop pursuing our own ways and submit to the ways of Christ. One example, uh, in the last four years, there was a, a couple that had gotten to the age of retirement. Here's one way they denied themselves. Instead of, of entering retirement in the sense of thinking, oh, it's the easy years, I can come and go as I please, they decided they were going to leave their home in Arizona and go to West Africa. They, they gave it to their church to use for missionaries as uh, they were coming home on furlough. They allowed their house to be used while they were overseas. And they went on their own dime to serve in West Africa, serving alongside our IMB missionaries. Oh, now I can do as I want and served further, just a new and different way. Now, I'm not advocating for, for all us being a mostly retired church that 
all of you need to pack up and, and go overseas. Maybe there is one or two that need to consider. But the denying of ourselves comes in the way of how are we using where God has given us? How are we denying ourselves to serve the Lord? When we've got that free moment in the day, how are we denying ourselves so that we can use that for the advantage of furthering the kingdom? How are we denying ourselves when, oh, you know what? There, there's this really nice thing I, I want, this nice new TV. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's something else. We deny ourselves by foregoing that want and instead pouring into somebody either in need or giving and sending of more missionaries. We deny ourselves in these little ways so that we may make much of the glory of Christ. This is the cost to follow Christ, denying ourselves. But it's also a call to take up our cross. We are to take our, our own cross, the, the instrument of death, to follow Jesus. And wear his necklaces and hang to look pretty and thing of shame. It was a thing of torture in the Roman culture. It's the most gruesome form of death in the world's history. Crucifixion is a call for us then to take up this thing of shame and death in order to die to ourselves, and in order to follow Christ and seeing that following Him is worth that of even our lives. The call to follow Christ isn't a call to follow him when it's easy. The king of glory came and laid down his life to purchase ours. How much more should we live in order to lay down our own lives to follow him? We even see here following. It says in verse 35, For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be shamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Just this last week, uh, Darcy was telling me uh, of someone she saw who had to make a tough decision. They often uh, speak on, on marriage and uh, that in particular against uh, that of, of homosexual marriage. And he was faced with the decision. This brother in Christ had to either give up real estate and continue to write or he had to remain silent ended up choosing and counting the cost to follow Christ and speak on his convictions by giving up real estate. Following Christ very well may cost us our jobs, may cost us that of a popular vote. It may cause us to eventually face the reality of death. For our brothers and sisters around the world, this is a daily cost. They must daily decide whether or not they want to publicly identify with Christ. And yet they choose to do so because they see that it is worth it. Call, the call to follow Jesus is one that may 
cost us all. And yet we need to see that it's absolutely worth it. Because apart from that, for us to save our lives here, for us to, to have everything and popularity and things to go smoothly may very well cost us the thing that matters most, and that is of our soul. Brothers and sisters, see that Christ came to redeem us. How much more should we be willing to count the cost and follow him wherever life may lead? Let us count the cost and follow him. And that's the last one, a call to follow Jesus or to keep following him. It's not just a one-time decision where we choose to follow Christ in the moment we profess faith in Jesus. It's a lifestyle of continuing to follow him, to continue to follow him as things get tough, continuing to follow him when it goes against the grain of culture and it seems countercultural. The call to follow Christ is a call to risk it all for the sake of Jesus. My prayer for us as a church is that we would count the cost of following Jesus, that we would see it is one worth it, that we would see it's worthy to forsake it all and to follow the King of glory, that we would see that it's worth forsaking our comforts and our own desires so that we can make our glorious King known to a world in ruins that needs our aid. Count the cost and take up our cross and follow our King. Do we see it's worth it? The first question in the Heidelberg Catechism says this What is your only comfort in life and in death? And here's the answer that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Will we believe this truth this morning about who our king is, that he came to suffer, to purchase us, and then turn, follow him? even laying down that of our own lives. The cost of discipleship is great, and yet the price paid by the Redeemer, by the suffering servant, is greater. He loved us so. May we love him in return. For just as Aslan stepped in for Edmund, as Edmund was declared a traitor, so Jesus has stood in for us. Whether you have yet to come to faith in Jesus Christ this morning, or you have made that confession of faith for 20 years or more, let us see that it's there's no life eternal. And yet in him, there's so much assurance. Whatever the world throws us, we have hope 
because of who Jesus is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning to hear your word. Father, I pray, Lord, even now, Lord, that you would do a heart work in us. Lord, if, if there's those that need to respond, Lord, may, may they do so during as we sing this song of response. Father, if others are, are curious to learn more of what it means to follow Jesus, Lord, Lord, help them uh, to come find me or another member of the church, uh, either during the song or, or following the service this morning. Lord, do this work even now so that you can be exalted and glorified.